Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This is Off The Bench with Jason Matthews. A look back at the week in sport and the big interviews. Yeah, welcome to it. Another weekend, another edition of Off The Bench. G'day, it is Jace here. Um, it has been a big week, uh, particularly on Sports Day. Uh, chatted to quite a lot of uh, influential people and not so influential people. But, hey, it's it's been massive. And I'll tell you one thing. Uh, we had the pleasure of chatting to Mick Collis, who has brought out a book. It's called Australia's Toughest Sports People. It's about 12 sports people who are tough as nails. We're going to replay that chat for you real soon. That's a two-parter. Uh, also, uh, Chris Nelson with the latest Racing Queensland news and, of course, big weekend of racing, Cox Plates, the wait for age, best race in Australia. Well, everyone says it's the best race. I want to ask Chris why that is the case, but... We kicked off uh, the week with a chat with the football manager of the mighty South Sydney Rabbitohs. Hello, Mark Ellison. How are you going? Yeah, thanks. Uh, good thanks, Mark. And I um, haven't spoken to you two weeks after the grand final. But uh, just a uh, subject tonight around the Canterbury Bulldogs and who's your favourite Bulldogs player. Now, you played a lot of game against the Bulldogs. You've had some great tussles against the Bulldogs uh, through your time with the Bunnies. Who was the... Who was the player that you'd lose sleep over the night before when thinking about you got to play them the next day from the Bulldogs? Oh, I think I think Terry Lamb was always a standout for them against us. I mean, he had a powerful forward pack, but the way he engineered his team around the park and then he just kept backing up and scoring try after try was always hard to contain. He was he's one of the greats of the Bulldogs here, that's for sure. Mm. Now, a couple of weeks after the grand final, a lot to digest, I suppose. And when you do a review of the, uh, of the season in your role, um, has have you had to do that yet or is that still coming? Oh, we haven't really done it because, I mean, it was different circumstances this year. We've obviously got a change of coach, um, which is well documented. And a lot of the boys are up in, um, up in Queensland still. Uh, and the staff was sort of, you know, split. Some are still up there. And some, um, some are back in Sydney, but we'll have a look at it again uh, come the start of November when we get the staff back together, and yeah, just have a look at things we we, we think we need to improve. Uh, but overall, I mean, it was a very enjoyable and a, a, a very good season for the club. Mm, mate, it's badge. How you going? And um, I'm good just badge, wanted to uh, good, good. Just wanted to. Um, you know, he had a few years there, Wayne Bennett, um, and I just want to know what you know, how different do you think it's going to be without him around or do you think it'll be pretty much seamless with Jason Demetrio taking over? Well, I think we've had we've had good time, Badge, to, to sort of plan for it. And, you know, when, when Wayne came, that was part of part of the deal that, that JD was going to be the, the head coach in, in three years' time. And, mm. uh, you know, that brings JD now to five years working under Wayne. And, you know, you've obviously played under Wayne. You know, he's a very different coach. He's... Got very different ways. A lot of coaches, but um, I think I think Jason, having worked with him for that long, has put him in a good spot to to take over the team now. Um, a lot of the a lot of the, the players that we've had over the last you know two three years are still with us. 
Um, and Jason's got to know them well, and I, you know, I'm very confident he's going to do a good job with them. Mm, do, you, do you think, I mean, what do you tell fans? Do, do you think things will be a bit different um, under him, or, or is it or much the same? Because, as you said, he's been under Wayne for five years. Or do you see some completely different traits in, in J.D.? Oh, of course. I mean, like everybody's different. They're different personalities, different people. Of course, there's going to be going to be different approaches from JD. But um, JD had a lot to do with, with particularly defensively the team this season. And um, you know, the one thing that we have improved, and particularly in the last two or three months, is, is the defensive side of our game. And that's what kept us going at the back end of the season. Um, with any any sort of change. Um, you know, people have to adapt in certain areas. But, I mean, we're really confident with the squad that we've got together next year and and, and Jason on with his assistants. You know, I'm, I'm not concerned at all. I'm looking forward to the season. I believe, I believe Mark, over the years, that some coaches uh, post-Wayne Bennett, they've probably changed a lot in the small space of time when they've taken over, changed the methods and tried to find trying to find a different way to coach from what the success that Wayne has brought to a lot of those clubs. Do you, I know that he's got his own coaching philosophies and his own coaching methods, but will it be um, will it be just a slow a slow burn when it comes to putting his his um, putting his stake on this side, Jace Demetrio? Yeah, I think any any coach that came into this comes into this situation. Needs to have his own stamp on it, but I'm sure he's, he's not going to change anything that's, that's been working for us. And there's been a lot of good signs, you know, particularly in, the, in this season. Uh, you know, things that have worked really well for us. Um, and JD, he's been around for quite a while. He's had a good coaching apprenticeship. Um, like he first started over in England, came in and was assistant coach. Cowboys when they won in, in 215. Uh, he worked at the Broncos with Wayne again with us for three seasons. So for a, a rookie NRL coach, he's quite experienced. Mm. And he's been around the game a long time. He's got a great rapport with the players that are already there and a few new ones that are coming in. Um, so, yeah, he, he's a smart fella. And I'm sure, I'm sure he'll only change what he thinks needs changing. Yeah. Now, Cody Walker, who had a tremendous season, George Pickens Player of the Year, uh, is great in the grand final as well, but of course that intercept pass is getting shown on every screen that you want to watch when it comes to the grand final. How was he after that grand final? Obviously disappointed, but in the days following, um, how was Cody? Oh, everyone was a bit disappointed. I mean, we generally thought we were going that we could win it, and um, I think as far as when you're expecting to win things, you don't think about about losing, and then when the disappointment hits, it's a little bit hard to, hard to handle, but I don't think he took it any worse than anyone else. Um, you know, he, he had a magnificent season for us. He, he won all of our club awards for you know, Players Player and the George Piggins Medal. Um, so, you know, you, you throw an intercept in a grand final, but there are other things in the game that happen mm. that, that could have changed it as well. I mean, well, Adam had the kick at the end that could have drawn it up and we'd have forgotten about the intercept. But these things, these things happen, uh, you know, at that level of football. So... Um, yeah, I, I'm pretty. I hope he's not blaming himself for it because it certainly wasn't his fault mm. that, that we didn't get the job done. Will you be? You're confident you're going to get him re-signed pretty soon? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I am. I'm very confident. Mm. Well, he, you know, I don't. I think many people can see him going elsewhere, but I guess it's important given this new side coming in 
in, uh, in 2020. And you're not allowed to talk too much about that because Sats are still a bit down in the dumps about that. Um, but, yeah, that's, I guess you want to get him, you want to get him tied up. Your best players, you want to get them tied up, don't you, before they, um, yeah. before they perhaps head, uh, head elsewhere. Was, any, was there any sort of uh, gentleman's agreement with Wayne about players and not poaching South players? Did that need to be discussed? Well, I've never discussed it with him. You know, I shared an office with him for three years. and um, That'd be fun. You know, I, I've got to say it was quite funny at times. It was. He's, he's, got, a, he's got a good sense of humour. Does he know how but, to send um, an email? Did, Hello? Yes, he does, actually. He does. He does. Okay. Did you have to yeah. wake him up for training? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. no he's, all, he's good. Mate, the Rabbitohs revitalised him, mate. Yeah, he, uh, <laughs> no, no doubt. I'm... I, I'm telling you, he did. He did enjoy the place, and I think there's a, that mutual respect that, that the club and him have had over that three-year period. And yeah. he came in, and, and you know we're happy how our infrastructure of our club is set up. So that when Wayne came here, basically, you know, he just had to coach, and you know his relationship with the players is second to none of any coach I've ever seen. And uh, he could work on that, and you know the other people around the place did the jobs they needed to do, and it made his time here. Um, you know, I know he enjoyed it, and um, you know, so I don't. There's no need to, you know, to talk about who he's going to poach and things like that because, you know, we're we're confident. You know, we've got a lot of our key personnel signed for quite, you know, for long periods of time. Um, mm. So I'm not overly concerned about it at all. Yeah, he's a he's a great historian of the game too, Wayne. So I, I could see that he'd love the history of, of the bunnies. Now, the big question next year is losing one of your most popular bunnies in, in Adam Reynolds is yeah. who's going to be thrown into the mix as a skipper? Now, you're the one that gets to see the players better than anyone in the club. You see them in their good times, their bad times. You deal with families, partners, kids, just making sure that emotionally they're stable as well. So you're probably the best to talk to around the around the personalities of players uh, on and off the field. Now, if you're throwing Latrell, Cam Murray, Damien Cook, is there anyone else from a football manager, general manager of rugby league that, that jumps out of the ground that no one else is probably aware of that is that shows really good leadership qualities? Well, there's some there's some young young players. Like Campbell Graham's got the leadership qualities, but he hasn't had the experience of some of those other guys. The, the three guys you spoke about there were part of our leadership group this year, along with Adam Reynolds. So, you know, I haven't really had the discussion with, with JD yet, and at the end of the day, it'll be, it'll be his choice, obviously, but um, I'd definitely say it'd come, it'd come out of Latrell, Cody, or maybe Cam Murray as well. I'd say it'd come out one of those three, I'd imagine. But as I say, it's not. it'll be something that Jason decides. Now, the, world, the rugby league's best-looking man, Cam Murray, I saw he's put some stuff on social media, which has uh, got that patch on his shoulder. He's obviously gone under for shoulder surgery. What's, what's his yeah. length of time before he gets back to full training? Uh, I think it'll be about three months. Okay. Um, now, because of his you know, number of seasons he's had so far, he, he gets a 10-week break anyway. Mm. So you know, he'll come back into training, I think it's around the 17th of December. He had the surgery last week. So by the time he comes back into training, uh, gets his, and he always recovers well because he's, you know, he's so professional the way he goes about his business. And, you know, so he'll come back into training after Christmas and he'll be almost ready to go, I'd say. Mm. Hey, talking about your, your leaders and your best players, did you watch uh, Big Sam on SAS? I saw parts of it. I saw parts of it. He went pretty well, didn't he? 
Yeah, he I, went well. You put the soil. Fella. I was Badge and I were texting during, and, and Jace, our producer, I could see why people, Mark, want to follow him into battle. He's outstanding. Oh, yeah, he's been. I mean, obviously, I've seen it firsthand for many, many years. He's, he's been a, a great player for our club, and, you know, it stands alone what he did in 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 2014, mate. And you, Sach, you know about that with, with your dad. I mean, they're the. The two most, you know, historic sort of acts of bravery that the club's ever seen, along with Clive Churchill playing with the broken arm that day. But uh, yeah, you spoke about Wayne and enjoying the history of the club. I mean, it's that's what we pride ourselves on. I mean, you know, the foundation club, and we like to share stories with all the new players and that that came in. And, and you know, Sam came over from England, obviously in 2010, and. He knew all about the history when, you know, in 2014. So I think it was just a sort of mark of respect for your dad as well, what he did that night, mate. So he knew all about it. And um, uh, he's, you know, it's just down in folklore of the club now. But, you know, Sam, Sam Burgess is, you know, what he's done for our club has been outstanding. And, mm. you know, you talk, you talk to Bobby McCarthy and Michael Cleary and all those guys, and they, they always talk, they always say that Sam Burgess would have made their team back in that era as well. So yeah. that's that's probably one of the biggest raps you could give him. Yeah. God, how long have we got to wait till the footy season starts again? <laughs> I've just got chills listening no, to you, Mark. LA wants a, he wants a break, mate. Oh, does he? He oh. wants a break. Footballers <laughs> have to have 17 weeks off, some of them too. So. Oh, God, <laughs> we have to wait year. that long. <laughs> hey, before we let you go, uh, Ello, is it Ello or was that what we're calling well, you? You don't know him well enough, so you call him yeah, Mark. Yeah, yeah. That's okay, uh, Mr. Ellison, uh, yeah. before we Ali, let you go. Ali, only my mother calls me, mate. LA's <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Hey, uh, good news uh, today for Alex Johnston, extended till the end of 2025. And I just looked at this today. He only needs 77 more tries in four seasons to break Ken Irvine's record. Can that be done? Yeah, it's, yeah, I think it can. It's a, it's a great signing for us today, particularly you know for what's happened in the past season or two, where we our cap position had a struggling to keep. Keep Alex, and only for an act of God, we wouldn't have been able to keep him. And um, you know, he joked with me that can he get in early so that he doesn't miss out again. So <laughs> you know, we, we had a look, and his his performances with the club over the years have been fantastic. I, mean, I think he scored twenty seven tries this year, mm. and I think he missed five games with a hamstring injury as well. <laughs> so I mean, you know, I, I I really think it can be done. Like he's he's a real athlete, Alex. Obviously, you see. He's speed. He's, he's uh, he looks after himself off the field. Um, trains very well. So, you know, the longevity for he's only twenty six years of age. So, you know, he's, he's got he's got four more years to do it. So, I'd be surprised if he doesn't put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, Particularly right. if he stays on the left wing. Kill it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Mark Ellison, we're going to let you go. Uh, thank you for our weekly South Sydney update. Uh, we'll be doing these <laughs> weekly. Okay. We'll ring again next Monday, yeah. same time, mate. Okay, no problem. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. I was trying to get Woogie to play Glory Glory. Oh, no, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, can I play? Because no, we, we, we do it for all South guests. Yeah, we do. I've lost it. will sing it for you. Yeah. <laughs> did you hear his dad? Did you hear his dad sing the song? Mark, did you hear about that? Yes, yes, I certainly did. It I'd, gave me goosebumps. And now that we're all round the bar. There we go. I'd rather you yeah, that. All right. We'll let you go. Mark Ellison, football manager at South City. Thanks, Thanks for your time. Thanks, hello.
Thanks, guys. See you later. Cheers. We better go to a break. Before I get before all the Roosters supporters ring Don't up you cut John me. Sattler off. Well, I have to because all you know what those Roosters what? supporters are like. No, they, they get bitchy, mate. <laughs> we'll get there every time we talk about them. We play their song. Does anyone we'll have they got, a, have they got sing a, it? Have they got a song? Of course they've got a have great Of course song. they've got a song. Prayer Club. What is it? Money by Pink Floyd? Is that? We <laughs> 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 better get to a break. Welcome back. This is Off the Bench NRL. Very interesting chat we're going to have now. Uh, Satchu was sent a book that's been sitting in the Sports Day office here. We've been looking at it going, we've got to talk to this guy. got to talk to this guy. His name's Mick Collis. He's the author of Australia's Toughest Sports People. It's a, it's a really good book around 12 people who have just, I guess, have been heroic in their acts through their injuries and, and whatnot. Defin- do they define the word courage? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and Mick, I'm going to ask you this question straight up, mate. How, how did you settle on these 12 when there's probably dozens more stories? Yeah, look, that's one of the, the great questions. It's, uh, and look, and, and I, I keep coming across people that say, oh, why didn't you have this person or why have you got that person in it? So it was always going to be controversial. But, I mean, I started with... I mean, I had the idea that got me kicked off in the first place was when I heard um, that Gillian Rolton had fallen off a horse in the 1996 Olympic Games and she'd broken a collarbone and a rib and she got back on the horse, she fell off again, and then she got back on again and had to ride three kilometres over 15 jumps with, with the broken ribs and the collarbone. I just thought, gee, that's, that's unbelievable that this lady's been able to do that. And now I kind of thought about some of the things that I knew about growing up as a kid and obviously... You know, John Sattler in the 1970 grand final with a broken jaw was a famous one, and Rick McCosker in the 77 test was a famous one. So there was a couple that I that I knew I wanted to do. And then as I started researching those and, and talking to people, I had people would say, oh, have you heard about this guy? And I hadn't. And then there'd be one I was up at, I spoke up at a lunch at um, Burleyhead Surf Club one day, and, and the MC mentioned this guy called Curtis McGrath, who happened to be the audience. And I'd never heard of Curtis McGrath. And I had a chat to him and found his story, and he was a soldier in Afghanistan, and he trod on a landmine, blew both of his legs off. He was the medic, so he had to apply his own tourniquets onto his own legs, that were obviously now missing. And as he was being stretched out of Afghanistan, he said his mates were feeling a little bit stressed about the whole situation. And he said to the boys, he said, fellas, don't worry, I'll go to the Paralympics. And then four years later, he won a gold medal for Australia at, at the Paralympics. Wow. So it was it was this growing um it just kind of took on a life of its own as i as i found more people that i just you know look i had my i was just shaking my head at half of these stories it was um was unbelievable so there's obviously people that i haven't included that people think should be in there there's some i have included that people don't think should be there so it's um yeah it was always going to be good conversation over over a beer at a bar somewhere mick it is an, an amazing book an amazing read and i've read it twice to be quite honest um and it's it's a really good research to go back on on some of the familiar details on some of these uh, these great athletes was that the story that had the most profound effect on you the one you just told us about the Curtis McGraw look I think so purely because I mean everyone else is the sport you know, and, and look the, the stories the things that, that people went through were phenomenal and as I said I just had my jaw on the table as they were telling me what they went through but but you got someone like Curtis McGrath who no one had heard of you know I mean the majority of people wouldn't know who the bloke was and he was this real good looking strapping bloke and to know what he what he'd gone through, and to think you're in that situation where you've you've trodden a landmine and you've blown your legs off, and you're he had the presence of mind to start applying tourniquets, and, and his other team or platoon members came across, and he had to say to them, "Look, I need you to give me some adrenaline. I need you to give me some morphine." And, and how how you could stay 
sort of coherent in that situation was beyond me. And then the fact that he and he said it was just a throwaway line, just to try and relieve the pressure. And because he, he was he was actually born in New Zealand, but he was a soldier for Australia. And as they were as they were wheelchair wheeling him out in the in the stretcher, and he said that he was going to go to the Paralympics. And then he said, but it won't be for Australia; it'll be for New Zealand. And one of his mates said, "Oh, well, buggy, you can walk then." And he just, <laughs> it was just that classic Australian. And oh, so he was one that, yeah, he just, um, just you know, what an, an impressive young man. And then to see what he did, and he said that when he was in hospital, he started off; he was ninety kilos. When he got out of hospital, he was sixty kilos. And they said that his body, while it was healing, was burning the equivalent of him running a marathon a day just trying to heal and oh. so just you know what it had the effect it had on his body and then for him to you know go through and, and then you know become one of the best paralympic kayakers in, on the planet was um just phenomenal just you know just uh, the mental drive of, of him was uh yeah out, outstanding that was certainly one but look, they all affected me in, in some way but his was probably the most if i tried to put myself in his position i i just couldn't have done what he did now the athlete stephen bradbury when you as soon as you hear that name you think of winter olympics uh, gold medal athletes falling down and him celebrating and becoming a household name in australia and, and badge and i've spoken about this on a number of occasions um mick where a lot of people don't realize he'd been to so many olympics it was his fourth olympics but you the chapter in your book is not about his gold medal it's it's more about the the forgotten story about the road to that gold medal, which was a, a pretty pretty rough road, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and he's, you, know, you talk about people who should and shouldn't have been in the book. That's one person people always say to me, why is he in it? Because all he did was turn up and, and win that gold medal. But as you said, yeah, he was, it was his fourth Olympic Games and, and he, won a, he won his only gold medal at a world championship when he was 17. So for about a decade, he was one of the best skaters in the world. And people don't give him the credit for actually how good the bloke was. And he said at his first Olympics, he was only 18 and he got excited about all the free McDonald's. So he said he just <laughs> ate food and had a bad Olympics. And then his next one, he got glandular fever. His next one, I think he ended up getting food poisoning. So his, his fourth Olympics, all he wanted to do was to race well. He knew he was past it, so he knew he didn't have a hold of... He, he said he probably had um, two good races in him and, and his program was four races. So he, he won the he won his, uh, his heat and he was very happy with that. And then he won his quarterfinal and he was happy with that. And he got knocked out. Um, I think he came third in his quarterfinal and someone, there was a protest. So he got elevated into the semi. Same thing happened. People fell over. And then we all know the history of that, of that gold medal. But yeah, his story beforehand. So I think 1993 at a World Cup event, he was in a, in a race and there was a, a, uh, a sort of a stack in front of him. And one of the skaters in front, he's blade was pointing straight up and Steve fell and, and his thigh was basically impaled on this guy's blade and it went into his leg and just ripped out and he said by the time he slid across the ice he looked and there was just this stream of blood he said you've got six litres of blood in your body he reckoned he dropped about four litres in the space of about 10 seconds they just happened to be uh, the Canadian doctor on the sideline there watching him who's come out and basically plugged the holes in his leg and he said that if he had bled out for another, you know, ten seconds, he would have he would have been dead. So he said he he almost died on the ice, and it took him, I think it was 133 stitches to put his leg back together. And then in 2000, he in another training accident, he broke his neck. So and the, and the doctor said, look, mate, you'll never ski again, or you'll never skate again. So you know, two years later, the guy won the gold medal. So for me, the backstory out of all these people was the main thing that I that I didn't know and, and I wanted to know and I wanted other people to know about. So Bradby is that classic example about a guy that's just had to persist and, and overcome so many obstacles to be standing there, 
to actually win that. And it was funny, when we finished the chat, he said, oh, I don't want to talk about the gold medal. And I said, no, mate, we all know that you won the gold medal. I was interested in what happened to get you there. So, yeah, the backstory was the key thing for me. Mick, these 12 um, sports stars or people that you've, you've uh, covered in the book, how was the research for that? It was, was it, did it have its difficulties with, uh, with some of them? I, mean, I imagine some would be as um, simple as uh, you know, turning up and having a good long chat to them, but was it, was it a bit tricky getting your research done on some of them? Yeah, it was with some, but the main thing I like, I kind of knew the key things. So, for example, you know, with um, with Dipper and, and Dermot Barrett in that '89 Grand Final, I'd seen I'd seen the vision of them being hit, and, and so I kind of knew where I wanted to get to with the broken ribs or whatever, or the punctured lung, whatever it was, or, or you know, sats with your dad, John. I knew he'd broken his jaw, but but I wanted to know the rest. So I didn't I didn't find out too much information before I went and spoke to them, because. I wanted the story to sort of evolve in its own way. And, and I figure if, if I knew too much, I probably wouldn't ask enough questions because I thought, oh, look, I already know that. So I thought mm. if, I, if I go in a little bit almost underprepared, I was sitting there like the reader for the first time, finding out all this information that, that I just didn't know. And even, you know, the Dean Jones story, um, when he scored that 200 runs in Madras and he got to about 160 and he said he can't remember anything after 160. And there's that famous sledge that Alan Border gave him. He said, you know, if you don't want to go, go off and I'll get a, a real man out here. I'll get a Queenslander. And I asked Dean Jones, I said, do you remember him saying that? He said, no, I don't. He said, I don't remember him saying it, but he said, oh, Alan Border wouldn't lie, so I'm sure that he would have said it. So it was just this famous part of Australian folklore. Dean Jones, who was actually there, can't remember it being said. So <laughs> all these little things that, that came out of it was, um, yeah, so look, I spent probably about an hour and a half with each person and it was just well, yeah, for me as a sports fan to sit one on one and just and just find out their story, and I think they all enjoyed telling the story because they weren't only talking about that one incident; they were talking about you know the, the way they grew up as a kids and, and the things that influenced them throughout their lives and all those different little things they had to get across as they were as they were going through. And, and you know, someone like Rick McCosker had the broken jaw. He said, you know, that mm. was that was okay, but it wasn't. You know, he didn't think it was anything special. He said the toughest thing he ever did was he was playing a shield match for New South Wales against Victoria. And he said New South Wales batted first um, and then they went to... And he was an opener, so they batted, then he fielded. He was on the ground for the whole game. Well, no, the other way around. He fielded first, then he batted, batted through the innings, fielded, and then was there to hit the winning runs. And he said he was on the field for every single second of that shield game for five days. And he said that was the toughest thing he's ever done. He got on the train in Sydney to go to work, got on in the western suburbs, and he reckons he stood up fell asleep and then woke up when he got to Central uh, to start his day. So little things like that that people sort of don't know, that was the stuff that I just found absolutely fascinating speaking to these people. This is Off The Bench NRL. We'll be back soon. Welcome back. This is Off The Bench NRL. Uh, Time now for part two of our chat with uh, Mick Collis. I spoke to him earlier today. He's the author of Australia's Toughest Sports People. Part one was outstanding at the chat earlier in Sports Day. Hang around for this. Part two, that's asking him about a very special Australian female athlete. Now, Alyssa Camplin. I always admired Alyssa Camplin, but I love the way that you start her chapter off, chapter two. Of course, gold medalist in aerial skiing. But in 1994, she said she wants to be an Olympian. And the surprise was it was in aerial skiing. But the, 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 I suppose the, the true 
tested a comment, con, a comment of that nature is that she was 19, she'd never pulled on a pair of skis, and she'd never even seen snow, Mick. <laughs> yeah, oh, that, she was extraordinary. And you, and you talk about the athletes that affect, or that, that I suppose impacted me the most. I, I think out of all of them, her story is is insane because she she was a very good athlete as a kid and she was a, a runner. And she said that she used to, at training, she would run an 800, she would set a PB and she would vomit. And she was doing that at nine years old. So at nine years old, she was pushing herself that hard that she would vomit. Most kids, you know, once it gets a bit tough, they ease off a little bit, but she would just push through. Then she did gymnastics, she did diving, and she wanted to, she wanted to be an Olympian. And then, yeah, she was watching a World Cup and Kirsty Marshall um, must have won, won, I think she must have won a gold medal. And Alyssa just said, that's what I want to do. And, yes, yeah, she was 19, had never seen snow. She took herself down to Threadbow and said to the head of the winter ski program, I want to go to the Olympics, what do I have to do? And he's mapped out this basically eight-year plan for Alyssa to go from never having stood on skis to being at the Winter Olympics. And, and she tells the story about she had to ski for a year before she could jump. And then the first jumps you do are in water before you can jump on snow. And her first jump on water, she said she landed on her back and coughed up blood. And I said, well, do you think maybe that was a sign that, you know, <laughs> coughing up blood, maybe this isn't your sport? And she said, no, I coughed up blood because I made a mistake. All I wanted to do, I wanted to get back to the top of the jump again and do it again and do it properly. And so her her mindset was just, and that, that reflected her entire career. If there was something wrong, she just would work hard until she fixed it. Even when she'd broken both her ankles and she was landing, she'd land on the ice. She would said she'd go up the mountain. She'd vomit when she landed because of the pain. She'd go up the mountain. She'd take her boots and socks off, stick her feet in the snow to cool them down. Her coach would say, Alyssa, you're up. She'd dry her feet off put her boots and socks on, do the jump, land, vomit, go back up the mountain again. Oh. Just her resilience was, it was ex- extraordinary. And even when she was, she couldn't ski and they were on a training camp and she said she'd get up in the morning and all the her teammates would get changed. So she would get changed into a ski gear. They'd go up the mountain. She would lie on her bed in all her ski gear and just mentally rehearse the jumps that she would have been doing if she was training. They'd come back in for lunch. So she'd have lunch they'd get changed and go back out. So she'd get changed and lie back on the bed again. Like just, she was extraordinary. Her chapter is is next level, just crazy in terms of what she, how many things she broke and just how she just kept on going. And she said she'd look at an x-ray and make the doctors point out that there was no breaks. And if there was no breaks, she'd go back out and ski again. One time she got knocked out and she said her eyes were open and her, her, her eyes were just full of snow. She was just knocked out on the ice. So just... Mate, extraordinary for a, for that lady who's just this you know she's only about five foot two, very pretty. I remembered her for the first time on the extra ads, the chewing gum ads mm, on TV. Yeah, and here she is, this crazy, crazy lady with just such a mindset that was just unbelievable, really unbelievable. You talk about fracturing both her ankles. That was in the lead up to the two thousand and two Salt Lake City Winter Olympics. Yeah, yeah, wasn't she it? Had, yeah. So she had broken ankles when she jumped at the Olympics. So yeah, she was still broken. One of our favourites. Just extraordinary. One of our favourites, a girl from Rockhampton, Anna Mears, in the lead-up into the 2008 oh, yeah. Olympics. And, and her amazing battles with, with the uh, the Englishwoman, Victoria Pendleton. Yeah, I mean, you know, you talk about rivalries. That was um, that was one of the great rivalries of that Olympics was, was Pendleton and Mears. And that, that lasted for a, a long time, a couple of Olympics. But, you know, yeah, Anna Mears, broken neck at, at training. No, at, at, sorry, at a World Cup event, she... Mm. She broke a neck, and they took her to the hospital in America, and they didn't have any health insurance, or they weren't covered 
because they weren't American, obviously, and um, and so they wouldn't operate on her or check her out until they'd seen, got all the paperwork. So she's just sitting there thinking, look, I'll be going home in the morning, hurry up, I want to catch a plane. They've done the x-rays and come back and said, look, you know, you've broken your neck, you're not going anywhere. And her first thought, the coach had turned up, and it was only about eight months out or something rather, and she said to the coach, don't worry, I'll be right for the games. And the coaches just thought, you've just been diagnosed with a broken neck, and apparently it was only, she was two millimetres away from being confined to a wheelchair for her entire life. That, that's how bad that break was for her. And she was back on the bike at, at, on, a, on an ex, on a, like a, a wind trainer, 10 days after she'd, she'd broken her neck. She said they had to pack her neck up with a neck brace and she had to get a, like a clothes horse because she couldn't bend over because her head was too heavy. So just you know, 10 days later, back training, she said she got on for a minute the first day and then basically got all dizzy because she hadn't been doing anything for 10 days. Then she got back on in the afternoon and rode for five minutes. And she thought, if I can improve by four minutes in one day, I'll make it to the Olympic Games. And, and again, just these people, just their, their mindset and their determination, once they set themselves a goal, is it's, it's unbelievable. Like, it's inspirational, it's crazy, it's mad. It's, it's a whole combination of things. It's, uh, yeah, just, just crazy. Nathan Charles, um, he's only recently retired from playing playing rugby how does he feature in your book yeah so you know a young kid grew up in sydney and uh he moved across to play we got a contract for the brumbies then moved across to the western force but he was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis as a toddler and the doctors told his parents they said look you know unfortunately nathan's got cystic fibrosis he won't live past his 10th birthday so the parents have copped that and, and nathan as a toddler obviously didn't know what was going on but he said his parents they just made him have as normal life as possible. And I said to him, you know, what's it like living with cystic fibrosis? And he said, I don't know, because that's all he's ever done. He's got nothing to compare it with. So for him, that's just how he is. That's just, that's his life. That's his normal life. Mm. So he, he takes something like 25 pills a day, basically to keep himself alive. And he was, uh, he was at uh, contracted the Brumbies and no one knew that he, that he'd had it because of that, all the fitness testing that he'd done and all the, test they do no one had picked it up and he said because no one you don't test genetics so no one's going to pick up that you've got cystic fibrosis and word has started to drift around that that he um that he had it and he's he said he got a call he was at uni one day and it was from the coach adam friend of the brumbies at the time and it said look could you give me a call and nathan charles has thought oh look i've you know i've going to be sacked i've lost my contract whatever it is so he rang rang his coach back and the coach said oh nathan i hear you've got ms and Nathan Charles has gone, you know, what are you talking about? He said, oh, what's MS? And he said, you know, multiple sclerosis. And Nathan's gone, no, mate, I've got CF, I've got cystic fibrosis. And they've <laughs> gone, oh, okay, well, look, you better come in and talk about it. So he went and just told the team. and Because his main concern, he didn't want to be known as someone who had cystic fibrosis playing rugby. He wanted to be known as a rugby player who just happened to have cystic fibrosis. And look, so he had that, had all the, the treatments and whatever. He'd been in hospital a few times, but, you know, he went on to start for the Wallabies against the All Blacks and he was the only guy in the world playing a professional contact sport with cystic fibrosis. So for me it was a you know it was a different kind of toughness but again mm. just to be able to overcome a debilitating you know a disease where he should have been dead at 10 and he'd gone on to start for the Wallabies against the All Blacks just for me again I just thought god what a story. Yeah, outstanding. What about, can you give us a couple of athletes before we let you go, Mick? And this has been an amazing chat. We could talk all night about this, and I'm sure our listeners have really enjoyed this discussion as well. A um, couple of athletes that missed out in the 12 chapters. 
Oh, geez. Well, can I give you one more that did make the cut that, yep. that people may not have heard of? It's this old bloke called Hayden Bunn, and he's a he's one. He's about eighty-two now, and in fact, he's very much like your old man. Just that great character, just a, a tough, just a tough old nut. And he said he was playing uh, for the Waffle over here in in WA, and it was the last game of the home and away season. And one of his teammates was a fellow by the name of Austin Robertson, who went on to set up World Series cricket with Kerry Packer. And Austin was he needed fifteen goals to break the record for the most number of goals in the home and away season. And early on in the game, Hayden, but, and Hayden was kind of the, the main guy to get Austin the ball. So he had a, had a key role in, in Austin kicking goals. And Hayden um, said he turned to take a mark and this guy's come from behind and, and, and need him right in the groin. And so he said he's lifted his jockstrap out because he knew it hurt. And he said he split his scrotum and his testicle has actually fallen out and, and unraveled and it's hanging down his leg on the cord. Oh, and so the, why the, did we the have people to do from Mantle have thought, oh, that's a bit hard. So the, the, the trainer has come out with a wad of gauze, picked up his nurry, tucked it under his jockstrap, and just put some electrical tape around his jockstrap. Hayden's kept playing, gone back out for the second half and kept playing. And I said to him, I said, why would you keep doing that? Like, if I saw my testicle hanging down my leg on a, on a cord... I couldn't have my hand up quick enough to say, get me to the hospital. So I said, why did you keep doing that? And he said, because Austin hadn't got his goals and I was the guy that had to get in the ball to get the goal. So oh, they, wow. look, so anyway, Austin, and Austin ended up getting the 15 goals and then they just put Hayden in the dressing room afterwards. They put a stitch. Hey, Austin reckons it was 15 stitches, one for every goal, just in his, in his scrotum <laughs> after the game. And he said he, he spent the next week just standing in the ocean to try and get the swelling down because he had a semi-final. He had to play the next This is Off The Bench NRL. We'll be back soon. Welcome back. This is Off The Bench NRL. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, Before we go, we like to wrap up the show uh, each week with um, some words of wisdom. Uh, and this is from this man, Chris Nelson, obviously, with the Racing Queensland. That's right, I know. You're the only person I could find. You're the only one to answer the phone. <laughs> Queensland is racing. The action continues this week across the Sunshine State. Visit racingqueensland.com.au. Um, do they like you, Racing Queensland? Well, I've never asked you. Have you? Are they fans of yours? Well, I, I suppose if they weren't fans of mine, I wouldn't be doing this particular slot. Mm, so uh, good point. I can only gather that they are. I can only, and I certainly hope they are, and, and, and continue to be. Well, can I just say we love them, uh, and great to have you on off the bench, Racing Queensland. Listen, let's get to Doomben, a uh, big Saturday afternoon of racing at Doomben. Uh, give us some highlights, mate. Ten races at Doomben on uh, on Saturday. Jase, there's ten races at Doomben. Uh, we kick off uh, nice and early, and we finish at about uh, 5.23 in the afternoon, of course. So tips, well, I think there's a couple there. Race 6, number 4, Ray Gen resumes. So Rob Heathcote trains. I like the trial. Only had two starts, and they've both been very good efforts. And a uh, good price about Ray Gen. So race 6, number 4. And this horse in race 9, number 8, Sir Warwick. He is absolutely flying. He's had the three runs since coming north from Victoria. The latest win... He just powered away from them in the straight, and he ran really quick time. So I think he can bring that uh, midweek form uh, to Saturday grade, Sir Warwick. So I think race nine, number eight, and race six, number four, are the best bets on the card. Okay, superb. Of course, the Cox Plate is the big race uh, in Melbourne. Uh, Zaki had some good form uh, in Queensland this year, but it's struggling a bit in Victoria. Well, he got beaten at his last start. He was a... 
dollar. What was his official price? A About dollar twelve or something. Yeah. Yeah. Dollar. Well, he probably was at some stage, but he started officially at a dollar twenty-eight in the Caulfield Stakes, and of course he was beaten by Probabil. There's a lot of people out there trying to find excuses for that defeat. Couldn't find any myself. I just don't think those. Uh, well, the run prior in Melbourne, he won the Underwood at Sandown, but he didn't look to the eye that same sort of dash and that same sort of horse we saw in Queensland in the winter when he won the Hollandale, the Doom and Cup and the Q22. So maybe the Melbourne way just doesn't suit him as well as the Sydney and, and, and uh, Brisbane way of, uh, of going. So well, they're different down I'm there, aren't they? Him on. I struggle a bit in yeah, Melbourne as well. I don't have a black skivvy or a cravat. No, it's not. A hoodie. A what? A hoodie. That's the, uh, the clothing of choice in Melbourne is a hoodie. A hoodie. No, they're more sophisticated than that, aren't they? Down there? No, no. It's either hoodie or puffer jacket. <laughs> in summer. And it's too bloody cold. Yeah. That's the other problem as well. Zaki's been in Queensland sunbathing yes. and visiting the beach, and now he's down there going, what's this? He's going to have to put up with 16 and 17 degrees. and COVID. But look, the one plus, yes, all that. The one plus is that Dan Andrews jumps on board. What? No, not a plus. <laughs> There's one. The other plus is that J-Mac jumps on board. Again. Yeah, there you and go. He rode Zaki in all those races. So maybe he's the key. Maybe now, he is, but I'm saying he's not. Now, J-Mac, Huey, Bowman and Bossy, they've all been given exemptions to be down there, haven't they? They have. They have, and we'll see more and more of that over the... Uh, over the next uh, couple of weeks, of course, next week is uh, is Derby Day, and then we head into uh, the Cup Week. So there'll be uh, yep. a lot more jockeys getting exemptions from all over the place to come to Melbourne or go to Melbourne for now, those spring races. Now, racing purists, this is the Cox Plate's the biggest race, isn't it? It's it's the I think creme it is. Creme. Yeah, yeah. The, why the Cox why Plate, is that? Why is that? Wait for age? Well, it's that. Yeah, it's wait for age. It's that right sort of distance, two thousand and forty meters. And you generally find the best horse wins the Cox Plate. You don't get too many rough results. I mean, you think of all the horses that have won Cox Plates. Winks won four of them. Kingston Town won three of them. Uh, you go back through the years. The Might and Power won a Cox Plate. Uh, Superimposed won a Cox Plate. All the good horses win Cox Plates. And, and that's why they call it the Weight for Age Championship of Australia. And I think it is. And uh, it'll always be that way. Did you tell us who you thought was going to win? No, but uh, I will now. Number yep. six, very elegant. I think, it's got a great, I think it's got a great chance. But back her each way. I mean, she draws out. I think, I think it'll suit her drawing out because Damien Lane will be able to go back on her. And I think she's much better placed yeah. coming with a run, obviously, rather than being up close as she was in the Turnbull behind Incentivised. Nothing wrong with that form line. But she no. just looked as though she was bolting on the turn, but she just didn't put in down the straight. This time she'll be further back and they'll take off well before the home turn as they do in Cox Plates when the pressure goes on. So I'm with her. And look, there's supposed to be rain in Melbourne or there will be rain in Melbourne. Surprise, surprise. Yeah, so uh, she loves the wet ground. Absolutely loves the soft. You know what I'm backing, don't you? When you look at that, when you look at all the horses in that race, you know what I'm backing. Moanga. Well, I do like Moanga. I I really, actually, I do. I think, uh, what is 17 to 1 or something? I think it's. It's a good chance. Uh, yep. It's it's form's been uh, it's been pretty good. But come on, mate. It's, what do I always back? Horses that have boom in it, and what else? You don't listen to me, do you? Yeah, I know you. I can't see any booms in there. No. Uh, What's the other one? Gold. I always gold. back gold. Well, gold trip. Any chance? Well, international horse. So no idea. That's okay, thanks. You, um, yeah, so you'll have to work that one out for yourself, Jase. I'll leave that with you. I think I might do the old cocky, the cocky in the uh, cage thing again, put the yes. form guide down. Below. All right, mate, as we come back to Queensland, 
anything uh, in Sydney catch your eye today uh, for the weekend? Uh, uh, like Gravina in the last race, that's race 10 at Randwick on Saturday. Race 9, Gravina, I think, uh, will be well supported. The punters will be looking for a get out, and I think it will be that one, uh, Gravina. So uh, stick with Gravina. And just one of Robert Heathcote's. Yep. As I mentioned, uh, he's got two runners in big races in Sydney. Of course, Star Tonte's in the invitation worth $2 million, and he's got Emerald Kingdom in race five, which is a Salonte handicap, 1,400 metres. Very good run first up recently at Eagle Farm. Flyers second up, six starts for four wins, and Timmy Clark rides. And no one rides a front runner better than Timmy Clark, so a big, big chance for Emerald Kingdom. There you go. You're a busy, busy beaver, mate. Thank you for all that. Queensland is racing. The action continues this week across the Sunshine State. Visit racingqueensland.com.au. Thanks, mates. Thanks, Jake. Up, oh, that's another edition of Off the Bench, done and dusted for another week. Badge and Sats back with Sports Day uh, Monday night. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.